Hi, I'm Karen Martineau, founder of Bevival.com, and welcome back to the Long Before the End podcast series. In this series, we're examining our relationship with mortality by exposing how death, the protagonist, is portrayed in classic and contemporary literature. My hope is that these discussions will bring insight to your life as well as inspire your end-of-life narrative. Welcome back to Bevival's Long Before the End podcast series. I'm Michael Hamilton. And I'm Jed Beitler. We've been discussing the book, Death with Interruptions, by Jose Saramago. As you recall, he introduces us to an imaginary country where people have stopped dying. Up until the very dot of midnight, on the last day of the year, there were people who died in full compliance with the rules. And with that, we're exposed to the myriad challenges that follow. In this episode, we'll explore how Saramago challenges our perspectives on the quality of life versus quality of death. In other words, not dying versus the gift of mortality. You know, Jed, you and I have discussed many times how the pursuit of immortality leads us to do some very strange things. And it's been going on for millennia, back to the Paleolithic period two million years ago. In 2800 BC, the Epic of Gilgamesh tells the story of a demigod who undertakes this perilous journey to discover the secret of eternal life. Unsuccessful, he realizes his own mortality. But I guess in a way he did achieve immortality. His legacy was the epic poem that memorialized his exploits. You have the Knights of the Round Table and their quest for the Holy Grail, which would grant everlasting life. And it goes on and on, the Golden Apples, the Philosopher's Stone, all iterations on the same theme. It even crosses over from mythology and fiction into reality, if you think about Ponce de Leon and his search for the Fountain of Youth. Yes, and the quest is never-ending and continues to this very day. Google's Sergey Brin is investing tens of millions of dollars, hoping someday to cure death. And Peter Thiel, co-founder of PayPal, has given millions to the Methuselah Foundation, which has a similar mission. Well, and there are other points of view of how to achieve immortality. You know, in a sense, Ted Williams beat them both to the punch. You know, the Boston Red Sox great had his head cryogenically frozen in the hopes that someday in the future, science will have significantly advanced to restore him to life in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, it reminds me of a columnist Herb Cain's comment. The only thing wrong with immortality is it tends to go on forever. So let's return to the book for a second and, and think about Saramago's perspective. What's it like not dying? The process of not dying has stopped. Now, much like the wick of a candle that's just about to extinguish but never quite gets to that last wisp of smoke. That's a great metaphor. In Death with Interruptions, the only way to overcome the process of not dying was to transport those residents in the state of suspended life, or as they preferred to call it, arrested death, across the border where the normal rules of death existed. With her face still bathed in tears, she went and told her family about her father's plan, that they should take him that same night across the border, where death was still functioning, and where, he believed, death would have no alternative but to accept him. But that's fiction. Let's talk reality for a moment. The bigger issue is to consider whether we have the choice between a good death and a lingering death. Well, 
Yes and no. Physicians are charged with keeping us alive at all costs. The choices we currently make are more focused on the quality of life rather than the quality of death. You know, this has been an ongoing and an ever-increasing part of how we look at life. There's a rise of healthcare consumerism that is focused, if you will, on a balance sheet of healthy living, not healthy dying. You talked about the health claims of Quaker Oats or Cheerios or whether it is spas and whether it is abilities to look better through sculpting, et right. cetera. Right. Well, balance sheet is a great metaphor. Well, but the way I look at the balance sheet is that the healthy living part of the balance sheet versus the healthy dying, if you will, or the concept of all the things that we do to make and enrich our lives from a health standpoint, whether it's foods, whether it's supplements, and again, we talk about the commercial interests, the pharmaceutical industry. You know, if you think about all of the products that are there to extend life, whether it's something as simple as a vitamin to the latest cancer meds, this is all about, and you see it on TV every day, it's, you know, a chance to live longer, a chance to do this. It doesn't address the other side of the balance sheet. And that discourse is not just on a commercial basis, it's a public basis as well. But we don't have those same conversations about what do we do to plan for, to deal with those conversations about death. Well, I agree with you completely. And, you know, commercial interests don't have the desire, really, to explore the other side of the equation. I mean, we're going to help extend your life, but who's asking the question, do you want to extend your life? This is where you get to that, what you brought up earlier, the question of, do we have a choice? Is it in our hands? As healthcare consumerism has grown and, and that force behind it has grown, that's a choice. That's a decision to make ourselves more accountable. Well, our, our well ourselves and our families also. I mean, it's, a, it's really a unit. Yes. Yeah. But to make ourselves, in the broadest sense, more accountable for our health. And yet- Again, on a balance sheet side, when it comes to death and dying, we basically surrender that accountability. If you don't have those conversations, if you don't take charge of your own life as well as the end of that life, you will have someone else making those decisions for you. Right. It's having, as we talked about a while ago, it's having the courage to ask for and demand what you need. Yeah, it's definitely a philosophic conundrum. Do we try to keep ourselves alive or do we say, hey, enough is enough and submit? And who's the we? Is it the patient? Is it the family? Is it the physician? You know, I was talking to my son the other morning about uh, doing this podcast and he reminded me that a couple of years ago, his production company out in LA was working on a miniseries for Showtime called Time to Death. Uh, and it explores the lives of six people who, during the course of this miniseries, all die. Uh, and in some cases, those choices are made collectively. The family, the patient, the caregivers, the healthcare professionals. Um, but in one episode, a guy is diagnosed with a sarcoma, 
first thing he does is ask the physician, so give me my five-year prognosis. And the physician sort of shakes his head and says, no. He says, oh, okay, well, um, give me my one-year prognosis. And the physician shakes his head again, kind of giving the, yeah, that's not going to happen signal. And the patient basically says, with his parents there in the room and everything, so what, I could die tomorrow? And the physician sort of <laughs> submits to the, yeah, that could happen. In 2010, the New York Times Magazine published a piece by Katie Butler titled, What Broke My Father's Heart. Her article became the basis of a well-known book, Knocking on Heaven's Door. In the article, she recounts her family's experience of her father's slow decline into a bad death and her mother's decision to die too soon rather than too late. Advanced directives, DNRs, do not resuscitate orders. These devices are incredibly important because they guide the family and doctors as to one's personal choices. When is it too soon versus too late? When do the heroics lead to a bad death? Yeah, I can't conceive of the range of emotions entailed in making that kind of decision between living and dying. But the key word there is decision having the ability to make the decision to make that choice. Death with interruptions provides us with a fabulous caveat emptor. We assume that living forever means in perfect mental and physical health. Not so in this book. Here, death sets the table. The reason I stopped killing was to give those human beings who so loathed me a taste of what it would mean to live forever. When you're in the middle of chaos, it's too late. You're incapable of making wise decisions because you're just reacting to the crises. JAMA published a report that said, quote, communications about end-of-life care is associated with increased quality of life and improved quality of dying. So then talking and thinking about end-of-life issues do have a positive effect on our lives. It allows us to live in the now. And that's the message, ultimately, preparing to prepare long before the end. In our next episode, we'll dive into another theme, how we view death. As always, don't hesitate to send us your thoughts, insights, questions. Tell us what you're reading. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is longbeforetheend at gmail.com. That's one word, long before the end. I'm Michael Hamilton. And I'm Jed Beitler. Thanks for listening.